That's a good point. Um, we were talking about anniversaries up here of things that have happened. Um, Will was saying that it's been three years now. They've had two new kids officially smissed. Three years, y'all. Y'all are like done ruined now. <laughs> and on May 5th of this year, we will have been merged as Providence for five years. So time flies when you're having fun, right? So that got me thinking, oh, about 11 years ago. It was 11 years ago, about this time. Um, we looked at and purchased our house in Helen that we're living in. Eleven years ago, John was a baby. We were oh, everybody said oh. Hard to it is it is hard to imagine. Um, but we knew coming into this thing, it was going to take some work. Um, it it was an old, still is an old, coal camp house and uh, had radiator heat and. Old oil burning furnace and drywall looked pretty rough and just we knew it was going to need some work. I don't know if we knew how much work it was going to need, but we knew it was going to take some work. So we went down to look at it. And I remember it had been shut up. The, the lady who had lived there, the widow who had lived there, had passed away in November. And it was around April that we went and looked at it. Well, it had been closed up that whole time. It was cold in there, y'all. Cold. Um, and we're looking around, we say, hey, we'll do this, we'll do that, we'll do this, we'll do that. But we had to assess it, we had to look at it and figure out what we were going to do. Well, of course, as time goes on, you're going to do more and you're going to do more. and you're gonna... We ended up replacing all the electric. We had to upgrade the electric. We had to redo all the plumbing. We had to paint every wall and every ceiling. We recovered most of the floors. And it's just this, and there's that, and there's this, and there's that, and take this out and put this in. And... and we really didn't understand what all it was going to take to do it and who all it was going to take to do it. Um, of course, our families helped us, and there were people that pitched in and people from church. and I mean, just it, it, was, it was a long process, and you're never done, right? But we got to the point where we could move in after a long, hard process. We spent a lot of time, we spent a lot of money, and a lot of people helped us. It was a big task. What do you think would have happened if I'd have went in there and just said, I'll take care of it all? A, I didn't have the know-how. B, I didn't have the time. And C, we still wouldn't be living there. Eleven years later, it still wouldn't be done. So what we're looking at here with Nehemiah is that Nehemiah has a burden. Nehemiah has a passion to get the inhabitants of Jerusalem, these exiles who had returned at this point probably around 80 years ago, and another wave of them came a little before this, 12 or 13 years before this, he had heard that the walls were broken down and that those in Jerusalem were living in open shame and danger. And he's in Susa, the capital of Persia, a thousand miles away. And he has a passion, he has a burden, and he wants to help the Jews who are in Jerusalem. But he's got to get there. And when he gets there, he's got to figure out what needs done. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. Today, we're going to see Nehemiah do what we did back in April 11 years ago. He's going to inspect. But he's got to get there first. We're going to see that too. If you have your Bibles, um, we're actually going to reread Nehemiah 1 as the public reading, to set the stage for Nehemiah 2, which we'll hopefully, by the grace of God, finish today. So if you would, stand with us as we read the Scriptures, the holy, God-breathed Scriptures, the very words of God that we stand in awe and reverence to. Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. 
And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. For the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. God, may there be a trembling before your word by your people. May there be an awe and a reverence for who you are and who you show yourself to be through these words that we look at today. Not my words, God, but yours. By the power of your Spirit, convict us, draw us, and empower us so that we might be doers of the word and not hearers only. Save sinners, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, bringing conviction and showing them the need for holiness. And may they find that holiness in the person of Christ as we meet Him in these pages and these words today, God. Have your way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So, having recapped by rereading chapter 1, let's jump into chapter 2. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 1 and 2 first. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Yeah. So as we begin here, it would serve us well to see how much time has passed since the end of chapter 1, which we read there at the beginning. Uh, When we last saw Nehemiah, he was identifying himself as the cupbearer of the king in the month of Kislev. And it was in the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes. So now it's in the month of Nisan, which is three, at least three months later, three and a half. We don't know the exact dates. So it's been about three months. We'll say at least three months. Now if you remember what was going on there at the end of chapter 1, what, what was Nehemiah doing? He had heard that his brothers who were in Jerusalem were not doing well and that they were given to shame and danger and their walls were broken down and their gates were burned. And when Nehemiah heard it, he wept and prayed, confessing the sins of the people and of his and his father's house as well. And in the conclusion of his prayer... Is the conclusion of his prayer was that he would have success in the sight of this man. And that man was the king, King Artaxerxes, King Longarm. Left arm longer than the right arm. I guess it looks like this. I don't know. And it says that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. <clears throat> and his prayer was actually, give, your, give success to your servant today. But now we find him at least three months later. And he's still waiting for that success, that chance to petition the king for what he wants. Now just stop a second. Three months. He's been praying and looking for an opportunity for three months. July is three months from now. Sometimes God don't get in a hurry. We'll just leave that there. Three months later, and he's presenting the king his wine. And then there's this phrase, Now I had not been sad in his presence. Now if you were with us for our journey through Esther, you remember King Xerxes, King Ahasuerus there, he liked to have fun, right? Six-month party, six-month drinking party. Everybody come and drink whatever you want, whenever you want. They were all about fun and frivolity. Something about being the most powerful man on the face of the earth that makes you think, I deserve to have fun. 
And I'm sure that things hadn't changed much from father to son. Artaxerxes is the son of Xerxes, the stepson of Esther. And kings want happy people in their presence. Put on your happy face in front of the king. And add in the fact that if the guy who's responsible for making sure your wine isn't poisoned is looking sad, or maybe even just a tad bit serious, might cause you to be concerned a little bit. What's the matter? Oh, nothing. This is for you. (laughs) So, Artaxerxes looks and says, What is up with you, boy? And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. So the king asks Nehemiah, Hey, what's up? Why is your face sad? You ain't sick, boy. I know what he said. He said, you need to go to Life Strategies. You need some therapy. <laughs> Probably not. I don't think Hamlet's that old. He had not been doing it this long. You're sad in heart. Now, it seems like a kind thing. You know, he said, what's the matter? You look sad. But it's, Nehemiah responds with what? He didn't say, well, thanks, king. I appreciate you considering me. He's scared. He's afraid. Then I was very much afraid. He had been praying for three plus months for an opportunity to present his case to the king about his struggling brethren in Jerusalem, and it would seem that opportunity had not presented itself for three plus months. And I assumed there had been much grieving and fasting and praying in that three plus months, so Nehemiah probably looked a little bit worse for wear. And now when his countenance is brought up by the king... Nehemiah knows that this is his chance and he's afraid. Don't you just love the realism of the Bible? I mean, he could have stuck out his chest and said, So I told him, O king, give me what I want. No, he's afraid. What's the matter, Nehemiah? You're looking sad. We don't do sad here. And he's afraid. I love the fact that the Bible does not gloss over human emotions. Even the hard ones. Therapists stump for just a second. There are no negative emotions. There's harder ones to deal with. Sad is not bad. Mad is not wrong. Those aren't negative. They're just harder. And when we label them positive and negative feelings, we don't want to feel the negative ones. But we have to. And here, Nehemiah is afraid. And he says, and I was afraid. He's afraid. I love the realism, the cold, hard truth of the Bible that shows that we are just dust. Nehemiah is a hero of the faith and he is going to accomplish great things. Trust me. But here, in the heat of the moment, he plainly admits that his great moment of confrontation had him scared. A lot like Esther before him, right? Then I was very much afraid, indeed. Me too. But how does he respond to this fear? Verse 3. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? That's pretty straightforward, right? When confronted with the king's direct questioning about his mood and his countenance, Nehemiah answers directly and correctly. In fear, let the king live forever. Now it may have felt kind of natural to do one of two things here. He could have dismissed it altogether and not addressed what the king was saying, or he could have just jumped right into what he wanted to say. But he knows that there is rank and importance An etiquette here. He wanted to make sure and recognize the king and his welfare, the king's welfare, knowing that the good of the king was of most importance to both the king and to Nehemiah. If the king isn't happy, guess what? Ain't nobody happy. So, he gave a standard, polite intro to what he's about to say. Let the king live forever. Yes, the king says. Yes, that is true. Yes. (laughs) After addressing the king, Nehemiah very pointedly addresses why he's sad. 
why he has what the, what the king is calling sadness of heart. He says, why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. That was a big deal for Nehemiah to bring this up and address it at all. But to so directly address it shows that it was a burning issue to him. He cared. We talked about that last week, remember? He cared a lot. He had just talked about how afraid he was and now he looks his issue square in the eyes and stares it down with the king. Yeah, I'm sad and why would I not be? My home place where my ancestors are entombed is in a shambles and its gates are destroyed by fire. I'm sad, king, because the place of my greatest pride and joy that I've never seen is in danger and shame. King, I can't be happy knowing my kinsmen in our homeland are open to attack and destruction by anyone from the outside. I can't abide the thought of those people and that place in the condition that they are in. And it makes me sad to the point that I can't enjoy the wealth and comfort here in your court. Now, whoa, how will the king respond now? He didn't mince any words. Nehemiah just brought it. So will the king respond in anger? Fury? Wrath? Will he remove Nehemiah from his place or position? Because he could do all the above and much more. He could separate his head from his shoulders right there. I can imagine Nehemiah literally holding his breath, waiting to see what the king would say. Verse 4 and 5. Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Now, to me, the king doesn't sound too mad. It would appear that God had granted answers to the prayers of Nehemiah over these past few months. He just simply asks, What are you requesting? And I guess that could go a couple of different ways at least. You're sad because Jerusalem and its inhabitants are in danger. You could, Nehemiah, the king thinks, A, ask me to help them somehow, or B, you could offer to help by something you want to do. Which is it, Nehemiah? And then I love this next sentence. What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Think about that for a second. (laughs) What do you want? What are you requesting? So I prayed. So the conversation was surely progressing, and now it was do or die, maybe literally. And now it was time to put it all on the line, and what does Nehemiah say? Nothing before he shoots up a quick prayer. A lot of commentators call this an arrow prayer, and you'll see it all through Nehemiah. He does it. Just launching up a quick prayer. Oh God, help me. What do you want, boy? Oh, Lord, help me. It makes me think about... Some of y'all know this story, some of you don't. I was in an accident several years ago going to pick up Herb Hodges at the airport. I'm driving up the road. It's 50 degrees, 10 o'clock in the morning, October. I'm listening to a John Piper message on hospitality. And he's talking about serving soup to people. And I remember him saying very plainly... I want you guys to come to my house, but I'm going to take a nap on Sunday. I'm like, oh, that's, that's good to think about. And all of a sudden, I'm sideways. Just in a straight, dead slide out of nowhere. And before, I, I, you know, this is happening in like .06 seconds. And I'm trying to figure out what's going on because the steering wheel's kind of not doing what I want it to. And I took my foot off and I'm hitting the brake and nothing. So I'm just sliding. Well, a lady had come up behind me and clipped me. And just sent me in a straight, it's kind of like a NASCAR thing, you know. She just broke my traction, sent me into the wall. But there was no wall, but there was a guardrail. The end of the guardrail was here, and I'm sliding this way toward the guardrail. And again, in about .12 seconds, I realize I'm out of control here. And I'm about to hit this guardrail. So, in point, at .15 seconds, I said this, God help me, out loud. And then I hit the end of that guardrail, took out three of the posts, and it flipped me over on the side, on my driver's side door. Never lost consciousness, sitting there sideways going, huh. 
Huh. There's more to that story, but we'll leave it at that. The point is this, I had no time to react. And in the .03 seconds I had, I prayed. Let me tell you what I didn't do. Oh Lord God, Thou art great and mighty Father, I am in a dead slide as Thou can see. Nope. It was God help me. That's all I had. And I think He did. Because... I hit that guardrail sliding this way and that guardrail, those posts hit right in the middle between the front and the back doors and the door jam. And I'm telling you folks, six inches this way and I'm dead. I think God heard my prayer. I said, God help me and God helped me. And that's kind of what we see here with Nehemiah. He doesn't have time to pontificate on the glories and grandeur of God. God help me. He just needed God to be God in that millisecond. What we see Nehemiah doing is gulping a prayer before he proceeded to say anything to the king. We'll talk more about that in application. So prayer, what do you want? Prayer, now we'll say. And then he said to the king, I want to go to Jerusalem. If you like me, And if you think I've done a good job for you, will you send me again to my homeland so I can help them rebuild that mess? Again, he's pretty straightforward here. There There we are. Pretty straightforward. Nehemiah is asking two very large questions. One, for the king to let him, who had been in and around the king for a long time, knowing so many intimate secrets of both king and state, he's asking that guy to let him go a thousand miles away. And then two, he's asking the king to help rebuild the defenses of a city that has been historically independent and oppositional to foreign rule. Nehemiah is saying that Artaxerxes should send his trusted advisor away to a place that hates being ruled by him so that he can help them rebuild it. Seems kind of counterintuitive if you're the king, don't you think? Well, let's see. What's the king say? Verse 6, And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. So the king responds. And there's a little bit of additional information here, right? The queen is sitting beside the king. Which would infer that whatever's going on here in the court at this time was a private affair because most of what I've seen in the commentaries says that queens weren't present in matters of state. So this is probably a personal time. Some even think that Nehemiah may have picked this time to put on a sad face, knowing it would be a more intimate time, not a formal legislative meeting. It's possible. Don't know. They don't say that, but it's a possibility. Either way, the king wants to know one thing. If I let you go, when are you coming back? So note that. The king was going to determine whether or not Nehemiah could go by whether or not he was planning on coming back. Which makes me think that if Nehemiah was wanting to leave and stay gone, then the king wouldn't let him go. Note the structure of his question. How long will you be gone and when will you return? He didn't say, are you coming back? But rather, when are you coming back? And obviously, Nehemiah gave him a time frame, although we don't see what that time frame is, because it says that it pleased the king to send him when he had given him a time. Now again, I don't know what time was given, but the king was in agreement. So get that. The king said yes. Nehemiah's request that he'd been praying for for three plus months was granted. All the praying, all the preparation, all the worry and fear came to a head and God granted Nehemiah's request through the king saying yes. So now, what to do? Well, Nehemiah, knowing how others had fared in making plans to go back to Jerusalem in that Cyrus, Darius, Xerxes, and Artaxerxes had given physical help to returning exiles, Nehemiah gets really bold. Verses 7 and 8. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. 
Nehemiah knew he was going to have to have the king's authority if those in power back in Jerusalem were going to cooperate, or at least not oppose this work. So he asks, he asks, he asks for letters for, for that very reason. He knew he had to have the king's permission and authority. And then he knows he's going to need raw materials. So he asks for a letter to Asaph, the man known as the keeper of the king's forest. Now that's a nice business card. You got a card? Yes, I do. I am Asaph. I am keeper of the king's forest. Oh, cool. So he asked for letters to Asaph to give him timber for the gates around the temple for the wall. And well, while we're at it, how about wood for me a house too? Might as well shoot for the full money, right? And the king says, okay. Now why do you think that is? Do you think the king's just doing this because he's a nice guy? No, because the good hand of Nehemiah's God was upon him. He gives glory to God for all of this, not boasting in himself, not even boasting in the king. And that's a pretty good strategy. We'll talk about that at the end too. Verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. Now we have no detailed account of Nehemiah preparing for or making his journey. It just says he comes to the governors of the province beyond the river. He's making the, he has taken and, and finished the thousand mile journey and now he's in the province beyond the river which is Jerusalem and surrounding areas. And he gives these people, these governors in charge there, the letters from the king. And he arrived with a little more than the clothes on his back. He came with officers of the army and horsemen. He rode up with an armed guard. He's got secret service detail with him. Okay? Flexing the muscle of the king's military might saying, y'all are going to cooperate with Nehemiah or else. Boom. So all's well, right? It seems like there's always opposition, right? We surely see that here. Verse 10. Enter the bad guys. And they sound like bad guys. That's what I love about the Bible. Usually the bad guys sound like bad guys, right? Huh? Remember Haman, the Agagite? Boo. So listen to this guy here. These two guys. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Now get used to equating these guys with problems. Okay? They are the Mordecai of our story. Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite. I grew up in Helen, right? And there was a set of twins named Skippy and Toby. And so every time I see Sanballat and Tobiah, I think Skippy and Toby. Now that means nothing. I just, it just triggers my mind. I can't help it. It's Skippy and Toby. They cause them problems for Nehemiah. They were nice guys. Skippy and Toby were nice guys. Anyway, <laughs> these guys were not happy that Nehemiah had come to Jerusalem and her people. These folk were nice folk, okay? They didn't want the Israelites of the city of Jerusalem to be in good standing. They didn't want them having protection. They wanted them in open shame and in danger. It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Well, that's pretty clear. And that's all we see from them for the moment. We'll see some... Some of them later. But for now, the stage is set. The bad guys have entered the scene. So now we're going to read a bigger chunk here, 11 through 16. Stay with me. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. Then I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring... And to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Now, I was trying to print out this map for y'all so you could see this, and I know you can't see it there, but this is a really good clear map that shows, the, of course, the outer perimeter there are the walls. Okay, 
And there's actually names of all these gates and parts of the wall. And what we'll see next week is that certain people worked on certain parts of these walls and gates. So this will be, I'll, I'll put it on the, on the Facebook page. And if you watch the Faith Life presentation, that map, map will be up there. But you can kind of get a, a feeling here. I mean, I don't know if you can get the, the size, but I mean, it's a pretty good chunk, y'all. That's not as big as the old city, which had been just monstrous. But he rode around during the night and he checked on all this stuff. Okay? And he did it in secret. He was clandestine. When Nehemiah told the king that he was upset at the state of Jerusalem and her people, he had not told anyone why he was coming. He just showed up with letters telling people to give him what he needed and to leave him alone. So after he got back in town and had been there for three days, he and a few men with him got up late one night and took a tour around the walls of the city to inspect what would need done in this project. He gives a detail of the route they took and some of what he saw in his inspection, which we won't get into. And he comes back and tells no one what the plan or agenda was. He's just getting an up-close view of what he was getting himself into, like when we walked into that house the first time. He was looking his problem in the eye and he was preparing to solve it. Very wise. So now what? Verse 17 and 18. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Oh, these two verses. (laughs) Woo! There's a lot of good stuff right here. I'd like to spend a Sunday here, but we won't. Having faced down the fear of approaching the king, having made the thousand-mile journey to Jerusalem, and now having assessed the extent of the problem firsthand, Nehemiah addressed the leaders of Jerusalem and he says this, You guys see the problem. The city is in ruins and its gates are burned. So now come, let's rebuild the wall so we cannot be in this state anymore. And then he told them how God had blessed every stage of his journey and how the king had showed his support as well. And they replied, I don't know, Nehemiah. I don't know. I kind of like the walls the way they are. I don't know. It's not a big deal, Nehemiah. That's why you came back? No. And they replied, let us rise up and built. Yes. Yes. Let us rise up and build. They hear him clearly communicate the need and the provision, and they follow him and they line up to help in this great task. And note the corporate sense of this. Let us rise up and build. If this is going to get done, it will take us. We We'll have to do this. And then this. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Assessment, challenge, agreement, preparation. Those things have to precede the work. And we see that perfectly here. We see it line up exactly. It's a good formula for anyone needing to get a task done. Assessment, challenge, agreement, preparation. It's one thing to know that something needs done. It's another thing altogether to take all the steps necessary to actually solve the problem and get the work done. And we see it perfectly here. More on that in application. One last bit as we finish the chapter. There's a work to be done and some willing people to do it. So everything's good. Yay, Team Israel! But remember we had a couple bad guys earlier? Well, they're back. 19 and 20. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? 
Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we His servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So our original two meanies have become three now. Meanies tend to multiply, don't they? Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab. They heard what was taking place and it says they jeered at us and despised us. Before, it had just said that they were greatly displeased, but now they're getting vocal. And any time you stand up and start to do something, people are going to start getting vocal. Step up and call sin, sin. And see if people don't start getting vocal. Step up and proclaiming the need for holiness in our culture today. And see if people don't start getting vocal. Rise up in the midst of a church and say, there's a work to be done. And see if people don't start getting vocal. Now they're jeering. They're not just despising them in their hearts. They're letting that hatred be known. They're getting vocal. And now the chorus had grown, right? They'd obviously been talking to others about what was going on and had gained some allies in their hateful opposition. A guy named Geshem the Arab had joined them and they were vocally assaulting the plans of the Jews. And they accused them of plotting a rebellion against the king, which was the very thing I said earlier could be a problem for the king in sending Nehemiah to rebuild this particular city's walls. What did they tell Pilate? If you don't crucify this man, you're no friend of Caesar's. Seems like bad guys always refer to the government, right? Hmm. And then rebuilding a wall would surely look like a precursor for rebellion. So how does Nehemiah combat this? He combats this by appealing to the help and oversight of God. He doesn't produce the letters from the king. He could have. But rather he goes far above the king's head to the ultimate authority, the source of authority, the God of heaven, whom these foreigners wouldn't recognize as God in the first place. That's the culture that we live in, by the way. You refer to the authority of heaven and people scoff and they jeer. And Nehemiah says they are servants of this God and that he would make, this God would make the work of the Jews prosper and that they, these outsider foreigners, had no portion or right or claim in the city of this God. Which sounds a lot like what the people in Ezra 1 through 6 told the people who wanted to help rebuild the temple. Ezra said, You have no part in this. Well, it wasn't Ezra, it was the, the leaders at that time. Ezra hadn't come back yet, I'm sorry. You have no part in this. This is the work of God, and listen, only God's people can complete it. Don't look to the world to help you fulfill the work of God. The, words, the world's methods and the world's money and the world's things and stuff. No part in this. You have no portion or right or claim in this, he says. You figure they liked that and said, oh, okay, fine. No. It's bound to make probably even more enemies. And let's just say this is not the last we'll see of these enemies. But for now, after Application. Now, I, they don't all start with the same letter, but each one is alliterated. Okay, let me give you an example. The first one is pray in preparation. So there's P in P. The second one is walk the walls. W, W, see what I'm going here? The third one is find your friends. The fourth one is engage the enemy. And the fifth one, yes, the fifth one, is go to God. Okay? Let me read them again. Pray in preparation, walk the walls, find your friends, engage the enemy, and go to God. Okay? First, pray in preparation. Or it could have been pray in perpetuity. But I didn't know if I could spell that, so... Pray in preparation. Application point one. Pray, 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 pray! We talked last week about the need to pray when confessing and repenting uh, from sins, but praying obviously isn't just about sin. Praying is the very fuel that the Christian life runs on. You see this in Nehemiah's life as he shoots up that arrow prayer before laying out his petition to King Artaxerxes. 
We know that he spent three plus months since his original receiving of the bad news of the Jews in Jerusalem, praying and waiting for the right opportunity to present his case to the king. And then when the time came to present that case to the king, what's he do? He prays. If you're a praying person, when you need to pray, you'll pray. When the moment comes and you're in the moment, you're not going to rely on your own instincts or your own thoughts. You're going to pray. When you're barreling toward the end of a guardrail, you're going to pray. And if your muscle memory is not programmed to prayer, you know what you're not going to do in the moment? You're not going to pray. You're going to try to figure it out for yourself real quick. And it's not going to work. We have to be people who are programmed by prayer. Constant prayer. All the time. All the time. Nehemiah was a man of prayer and so must we be. If we're going to do the work that God has set before us, we have to pray before, during, and after everything we do. When we're in crisis, our go-to reflex has to be prayer. When people bump us, what pours out of us should be prayer. Long purposeful prayers, yes. Quick arrow prayers, yes. Pre-thought out prayers, yes. Desperate in the heat of the moment prayers, yes. Anytime, all the time. Familiar verse, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. You're not always on your knees or on your face before God, but we should always be praying. Jesus said in teaching His disciples how to pray in Matthew 6, He says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. So He says to pray this way, and then He indicates that this prayer has to be at least daily. Anybody not want their daily bread? I'm pretty partial to mine, thank you very much. So if I'm going to get provision from God every day, I should be praying every day. Will He provide whether I pray or not? He will. But prayer is the work of preparation and it's God preparing me for what He wants to do. Prayer is not me twisting the arm of God saying, you better do what I want you to do. Prayer is God preparing me for what He's about to do. And me recognizing my constant, consistent, persistent, pleading need for Him in everything that I do. Grant me favor in the sight of this man. What do you want, Nehemiah? God help me. I need to go to Jerusalem. This implies that we are to pray and we're to pray for our basic needs on a consistent basis. And in relation to what we saw in Nehemiah today, when we are tested, we need to resort to prayer instinctually and immediately. And it needs to be our regular practice when we are in need and when we are not in need. And if there is a work to do, and there is, prayer has to be the force behind that work. Pray in preparation. Second, walk the walls. And this is the thing that has really been working on me. I think this may be the most overlooked part of doing a work in our lives, in our churches, and in the world today. This is the process of assessing the damage, looking our problems right in the face, and seeing just how bad things are. We're more prone to know problems are there, but not to look at them for the sake of actually seeing them. We'll sweep that under the rug. We won't deal with that right now. My dad used to joke, if the car was making a noise, he'd say, well, just turn the radio up so you can't hear it. I hope he was joking. That's a bad strategy. But here's the problem. It works. Doesn't it? I don't hear the noise anymore. Did you ever hear the story about the Christians in Germany during World War II? They'd hear the trains going by full of Jews headed to the concentration camps. And literally, when they would hear the trains go by, they would just sing a little louder so that they couldn't hear the trains 
full of Jews headed to gas chambers and concentration camps. We've got to look our problems right in the face and we've got to see how bad things really are. We need to address the problems in our lives if we're going to do the work God has put before us. We talked about sin last week, but that's not the only issue we have to square up on. We have limitations, right? We have restraints. We have tendencies. We have a thousand things that make us who we are individually and corporately which have to be assessed, understood, and seen for what they are. They're hindrances. And these hindrances have to be overcome. But we have to look at them. And we don't want to. And after we look at them, we have to look to the Bible to see what the answer to them may be. Individually, Of course, there's sin in our lives. There are natural tendencies that we have. We have to look at them and say, okay, what am I not doing well? Where am I failing? Where am I failing my family? Where am I failing my wife? Where am I failing the people that I work for? Where am I failing the church? And I've got to look it in the face. I've got to walk the walls and say, boy, this portion is bad. This portion is going to take some extra work. And we get to another portion, like this portion really doesn't really have any damage. We don't have to deal with this right now. Unfortunately, we live in a world that is plagued by entropy, which means something goes from a state of repair to disrepair if we don't do anything with it. But what are those areas that you've just been going, eh, eh, it's not a big deal, even though it's getting bigger. We look at our problems and we look to the Scripture to see what the answer may be. A good place to start, if we're we're wanting to do this assessment work, Psalm 139, 23-24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Let me tell you what, you go to God and ask Him to put His finger on some of your faults, He will do it. If you don't do it, He still might do it. So it's better to just agree with them and say, here I am, open book, show me what's going on. And sometimes it's not the physical things, the things that we see with our eyes that are the real problem. Sometimes we've strayed from the purposes and the goals and the glory of God and it's manifesting itself in a different way in our lives. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now let me ask you, church, individually and corporately, are you ready to do the work to go to God and ask Him to point out the breaches in your defenses? Those areas of your life that you're just not handling well. Anybody not have any? Right. Yeah, why don't you fix mine? That'd be great. If y'all would fix mine, y'all can just, yeah. That'd be a full-time job, by the way. Are you willing to go to God? and ask Him to point out the breaches in your defenses. Are you willing to ask God to show you where your walls are down? We have to walk the walls. Pray in preparation. Walk the walls. Third, find your friends. Nehemiah knew without a doubt. It was never even a question in his mind of him going and repairing these walls by himself. Never. Never once did he think about it. That would be insane. Well, you know what? I'll go to Jerusalem and I'll rebuild the walls. He never thought that. These things in your life and in our life corporately cannot be fixed by yourself. Here's where we talk about again accountability. This is where we talk again about corporate life and how we have to have each other. This life is only possible in the Christian walk if we do it together. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. There is no life in Christ apart from the church. And look around you. Here are your friends. Here are your family. Here are the ones that we're going to do this work with individually and corporately. You got breaches in your walls? Hope you don't have walls in your breaches. 
Um, you know what? Find somebody and say, you know what? I really need some help because I'm struggling in this area specifically. Find your buddy, find your friend, find your accountability partner. Find the people sitting in this room that love you. And pour your guts out to them. And tell them what you saw while you were walking the walls. Find your friends. Fourth, engage the enemy. We're almost done. Stay with me. Once we see the chinks in our armor, once we see the problems we have to address, we have to turn our attention to the detractors, the naysayers, and ultimately to the plans, schemes, and devices of the devil which are put in place to keep us from progressing, from advancing in our holiness and our wholeness. And it's not just the devil. We have three main enemies. What are they? The world, the flesh, and the devil. Not all of this is the devil's fault. Not all of this is the world's fault. Sometimes it's just this cruddy stuff here. And we've got to address all three. We have to know what all affects us and fight against it with all that we have, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Nehemiah spoke directly to his enemies and proclaimed that God would make them prosper, but then he said that they would rise and build and that Sanballat and his buddies had no part in this work. And that's exactly how we are to address our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have to address the God peace. That's the last application point, by the way. We're headed there. And then we have to do something, forsaking and defeating the enemies that rise up against our work. Maybe your enemy is laziness, maybe it's gluttony, maybe it's materialism, maybe it's anger or lust or selfishness, maybe it's a thousand different things. After praying and assessing how this is all affecting you, engage these issues and identify what you need to do and how you need to go about eradicating these issues. And then tell these habits, these thoughts, these actions, or whatever they may be, that they have no part in your work. They are no part of your life anymore. This is what Jesus meant in Matthew 16, 24-26, when He said, Then Jesus told His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Self-denial is engaging the enemies in your life which so often seem like old friends or guilty pleasures, and killing them. We have to die to ourselves, the flesh. We have to die to the world. And we have to die to the devil. We have to die. We have to die to a life and a mindset that says what we have, how we think, and what we enjoy is all that matters. Tell these besetting sins and these continual urges that the work that God has for you to do cannot include them. They've got to go. This is engaging the enemy both internal and external. When you are confronted with resistance to the work that God has given you, whether it's from the inside or from the outside, engage that enemy and tell that enemy that they have no part in this great calling that you are a part of. And only you can do that. Only you can deny yourself. Pray in preparation. Walk the walls. Find your friends. Engage the enemy. And finally, go to God. None of this works if God is not the driver and the power of it all. If God had not placed it in Nehemiah's heart to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild these walls, those walls would not have been built. If God's not the driver and the power of what you're doing, you will shrink back and fall and fail if you try to do it in your own power. Can I get an amen? Anybody ever tried to do it in your own power? Everybody look at your neighbor and say, Pastor Jason's preaching real good right now. I'm sorry, don't do that. Woo, a little levity there. 
I hate it when people do that. Correct that. Look at your neighbor and say, Pastor Jason, preaching real good right now. So you might can impress him. <laughs> if God's not the driver and the power of it all, you will shrink back and fall and fail when you try to do this in your own power. Nehemiah addressed that everything up to this point and everything going forward would only prosper if God was the one who was prospering them. And it's the same with us, and we have to address this. You will not and cannot try harder and do better all by yourself or for yourself. The work of God has to be done by God, and it has to be done for God. We sang it. Psalm 127.1 Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. This is God's work. And if we don't have God's power to accomplish it, we will fail. It's almost like Jesus knew what He was talking about when He said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in Him, He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You want to talk about a great work? You can't get out of bed in the morning if the Lord doesn't empower you to do it to His glory. You're like, I can get out of bed. You can't do it to His glory. And that's what this is all about. These are not just walls. This is about the glory of God in the people of God, in the city of God. And the great work that we all have to do is the glory of God, so we've got to go to God to fulfill and to empower us so that we can bring glory to Him. And if He doesn't do it, it doesn't get done. You have a work to do, you have a calling or a mandate from God, you will not accomplish it without God's direct and visible intervention. Nehemiah and his friends are about to partake in a miraculous work. It's, it's, it's amazing. But Nehemiah would verify that it was God, not them, that made this work prosper. Paul would say it this way, 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, the other apostles, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. As we face the work in front of us, individually and corporately, we have to look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, and the author and finisher of the work that we have to do. You got saved in no other way than looking to Jesus. He breathed His breath into your nostrils and you looked to Him and you were saved. There's no other way. You will not be saved by trying harder and doing better. You will not be saved by checking boxes off. Okay, yes, I did that. Yes, I did that. And if you're relying on a decision you made when you were four, that you were saved, that's not going to do it. You say, but I was saved when I was four. That's great. Is the power of God operational in your life today? That's how you know you're saved. And apart from that, nothing else will do. So we look to Jesus. In the same way that we relied on Him for our salvation, we rely on Him for our sanctification and to complete this great work that is in front of us. We look to Jesus. The risen, ascended, glorified Jesus who said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me. All glory be to Christ. All I have is Christ. And that's all we have, church. And the good news is that's all we need. He is everything that we need. He is everything that we want. Paul said in Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Let's look at the work before us. Let's pray Let's pray in preparation. Let's walk our walls. Let's find our friends. Let's engage the enemy. And finally, let's go to God and say, God, you do it or it does not get done. Let's pray. God, you are faithful. And we trust in your power and your glory and your faithfulness. 
to be the joy that is our strength. We look to you, Jesus, as the author and perfecter of our faith, and we know that apart from you we can do nothing, but that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. God, convict us of our sins. Show us the places where the walls need repaired. And may we call sin, sin. And may we call need, need. And may we call work, work. And may we look to You to give us the power to do what we cannot do, to accomplish this great work. Unless You build this house, we labor in vain. We acknowledge that and say, have Your way. And may your grace be with me. And may it not be I, but your grace that labors through us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for a benediction? Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever, and all God's people said, Amen. Stay and eat with us if you can, please.